0: Okay, you guys, if you want to find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. All right, you guys, if you want to grab a seat, we're going to get going here good to see you all this morning. It's good to hear your voices talking to one another. That's awesome. Okay, so one of the things that I'm always conscious of as a pastor, just as I'm sitting with people and talking about their lives, is the fact that um, as human beings, we all go through life with sort of this, I don't know, our own working model of reality. And, And like, Everyone has one. We're mostly unaware of it, but it exists, and it's really powerful in our lives because it sort of helps us map our location in the world. It helps us feel like reality is somewhat stable and that we have a handle on reality, and and we can understand the world and navigate it. And, and our working model of reality exists just mostly in our own imagination. It's like our mental map of the world or of existence that we hold in our minds that tells us what can exist and what can't, what is um, possible and impossible. It's, it's totally egocentric, by the way, because like, it's my mental picture, not yours. We often fight over our mental pictures of reality. It's just how I picture everything in my imagination. And so there's always like a little fantasy mixed into our mental model of reality, it's, it's our own little kind of egocentric, idealized image of our lives and the universe that we sort of project onto reality itself. And so, so it colors everything that we see, our mental, kind of our working model does. And the building blocks of the working model are, are imagination, but also language is a big part of it, and this is why we're constantly telling stories to describe reality to each other, we're naming things, always trying to define them, um, assigning meanings, giving significance to things. So, So we use language to try and draw everything from our experience into our working model of reality. This is just what we do. But there's a problem with this, like you knew there had to be a problem, and you probably already guessed the problem. There's our working model of reality, and then there's reality itself right? And they're never the same thing. And they're different in, like, ways that are usually the problem for us. Everyone's working model of reality is incomplete and flawed. And on some level, we all totally know this, but as we go about our daily lives, we mostly try to ignore the difference between reality and our working model of reality. And we sort of have to, because, like, we need to get through the day, we need to feel like our world is stable and we have a handle on it. And so mostly what we do is try to force everything that we encounter into our working model of reality, Every, everything that we run into. And any aspect of life that, that we can't make fit, it's almost like we can't even see it. This is why I say I bump into this when I'm sitting with people or when I'm in conversation because... Lots of times you'll see this with your friends, especially with your kids. You can see it and they can't see it, right? It's, it's like it's invisible to us. Things for which we have no imagination, they, they might as well not exist at all. If we can't visualize something or conceptualize or imagine something, it's hard to perceive that something as part of Reality for us. Let me see if I can illustrate this. So just pretend for a moment that hanging on our our wooden screen up here is Tim Suttles' imagination, okay? Because this is what I look like in my imagination, right? Now, let's do one that actually looks like me. So it's not actually me either. Do you know who that is? It's Matt Nagy, the Chiefs Offensive Coordinator. Have you noticed this? We're like long-lost brothers. We look... It happens to me constantly. It happened to me yesterday at this funeral. This guy was like, and then, then he started to realize. He goes, "You look like Matt Nagy." Like he was afraid to say. Uh, he thought it was me. Okay, now let's do me. This go to a picture of this me. This is me, very pensive, right? So deep. So this is my, this is my imagination, that, and just pretend it. It's it's made out of metal, that's magnetized. Like so, just just my. Just my lovely bald head there is magnetized. Everything else isn't, right? And, and so reality comes flying at my imagination, and the only things that will stick to it are things that are made of a certain kind of material for which I have an affinity. In this case, they have to be made of metal. If it's wood or cloth or plastic or some other thing, it just, it'll, they'll come at me in reality, but they'll just hit and fall when reality hits me in, in the face, Right? And so those things, if they're not made of metal, they don't stick, and so they never really become part of my working model of reality. And, and, and this, is just, this is just how it works for us. And so our imagination is kind of a limit um, in terms of how we see the world. Things that are outside the limits of our imagination just are really different to spot or see or, or draw into our working Model. They sort of fly right past us, or if they hit us, they don't, they don't stick. We don't even know they're happening. They just never get pulled into our theory of everything. Because there are limits to human imagination. Same limits go for language. Language is a limit. If we don't have language for something, we, we can't um, describe it, can't tell a story about it, can't, can't ascribe it meaning. It's hard to perceive that thing as real. Like, they're, they're just always things in reality that aren't in our working model of reality because we just don't have language for them. Also, um, we have this working model of reality um, to help us like be, feel rooted in something constant and real. It helps us locate ourselves and navigate the world and, and feel like we have a handle on it and that reality is, is stable, but... Every, everybody's working reality is incomplete and flawed. Like there's our working model of reality and then there's reality and they're not the same thing. Does that make sense up to that point? Everybody with me? Okay. Most of the time, we can just ignore the difference between the two. Sometimes we can't and, and this is a problem. Sometimes we bump into things that like clearly exist, they're happening, but they're not part of our model of reality, and we don't have imagination for them or language for them, a way to describe that encounter, then what happens is that encounter only registers as a disturbance, not as a thought or an idea or an image, as a disturbance. In continental philosophy, there's a name for this phenomenon, they call it the real, which um, I love this term. The real is a really fascinating concept. I find it very helpful. The real just refers to any aspect of reality that doesn't correspond to my working model of reality. So it's it's kind of for me unimaginable, un- unthinkable, unsayable. It's it's not reality, but it's like it's like if you it's like um, it's like the alter ego of my working model of reality, right? It's, it's almost like it's opposite or it's reflection. And so when we encounter it, it feels like it comes from another world, right? It, it registers as a disturbance. That's the real. And this is a huge philosophical, philosophical um, concept. You'll, you'll run into it a lot now that I've told you about it. So, so it's like, um, do you ever hear yourself saying, it's like something has happened, you turn away, and then you say to someone else, what just happened? and you don't have language for it yet. You don't have an ima- a category in your imagination for it yet. Like, something registered, but not in your imagination or your language, it just registered as a disturbance, right? So lots of times I'll, I'll find myself saying, like, I can't put my finger on it, but s- something disturbed me, it's disturbed me about that situation, right? Does this ever happen to you? That's, that's the real. Those are things we say after encounters with the real. And everything that we've mapped in our um, working model of reality has a corresponding real, some or unexplained, un- unexplored element. So any, any aspect of our working um, model of reality can get confronted like bothered, disturbed by its own real. So, so there's your working model of reality and there's reality itself and anything that exists within our working model of reality has some corresponding real some some like aspect of that person place or thing or event an element of some part of our reality that still just lies beyond our imagination or our language so there's the real of your marriage the real of your children or your family of origin, there's a reel of your profession, or why you're chasing that degree, there's a reel of the house that you dream about having, or the car you drive. The reel is just the, that aspect of anything that sort of lies, we're blind to it, we're, it's outside of our working model of reality, so that when we encounter that aspect of a thing, we don't even know what it is. It just registers as a disturbance, because it lies outside our working model. Let me see if I can give an example. help us understand the real. I'm going to pull back the curtain on Tim a little bit, so you have to promise not to use this knowledge against me, okay? Um, I'm getting better at it now, but for most of my life, I have lacked the ability to discern when I'm being manipulated by people who are good at manipulation. It's just like something I don't have a sensor for, uh, unless it's Like, totally obvious. I have always just assumed people are on the up and up and being genuine with me, which isn't always true. And it's not like I was totally gullible or something. It's like if it was obvious, I knew. But if someone, it was like someone I had a a relationship with, or or especially if um, they didn't even know they were doing it, which happens sometimes, you know. I just couldn't imagine someone trying to work me, trying to use me or control me. I just, I didn't have an imagination for it, or the language to name it and describe it. But anyone, any time it was happening, it was almost like my body already knew it. You know what I mean? Has that ever happened to you? Like, I don't know what's happening here, but something is happening. I could feel it. I just couldn't name it, and I had no category for it. And so I would get this uncanny feeling, this like eerie sensation. Like there 's a ghost in the room i couldn 't see because I was having an encounter with the real of that relationship and and so what I was feeling in my body in my body was my defenses kicking in to guard me against the real of that relationship literally you guys this is like I spent so much time on this with a therapist trying to figure this out and have them reflect it back to me because I had this pattern of getting sucked into these kind of controlling relationships. And it was happening. My imagination couldn't catch it. And my language couldn't describe it. But I knew it was happening. It's like my body knew. And um, so things like they, they taught me to pay attention to what's happening in your body. And I could start to feel things. like my mind always goes fuzzy when it happens. I'd start um, sweating. I would start sweating and usually oversharing, because apparently this is one of my defense mechanisms. <laughs> and then, this here's a funny one. I, I noticed that I would start like, co- contorting and moving around in my chair like a, like a middle school boy or something, right? So like if we're ever hanging out together and I'm sweating and oversharing and contorting my body, you're probably in- manipulating me. And I will not know. Like, I will have no idea it's happening. This is what an encounter with the real is, is like. It doesn't fit within our working model of the reality of whatever this is, like a, a relationship like that. It's like the opposite of that almost. It's like it's alter ego, but it's happening, and it registers as a disturbance, and it's uncanny. It's, we can feel it in our bodies. We can sense it, but we can't describe it. We don't have language for it. And it's unsettling. Like, the real is a ghost, man. It's a, it's a void. We can look right at it and not see it. It's this spectral presence that haunts everything, every part of our working model of reality. And here's the thing. Much of our life is organized to protect our working model. We have all these defenses to guard against the real and protect our working model of reality. Our our psychology, our relationships, our beliefs and ideologies, our emotions, our habits, all this stuff is is marshaled to help defend us, defend our working model of reality against anything that doesn't fit. We have incredible defense mechanisms at our disposal to hold off the real and preserve our model. The problem is, at some point, the defense mechanisms start to work against us, right? They stop helping. They make us sick. They, they ruin our relationships. And um, most of the time, we, we end up in crisis as our working model of reality sort of just becomes untenable, and much of what plagues human cultures, I'm convinced, much of what warps and destroys our relationships to God and ourselves and each other and the world around us, I'm talking about things like sin and violence and war, injustice, relational problems, trauma, abuse, emotional, psychological, social problems, all of them on some level, all of those things stem from the crazy lengths to which Humans will go to defend our working model of reality against eruptions of the real, to, to help, help us avoid confrontations with some aspect of being that disturbs or challenges things that we want to be settled. And part of why Christianity is such a revolution in terms of the, the history of religion and culture. Um, and part of what makes the life and teaching of Christ at once so disturbing and compelling is that um, Christianity has always recognized the need to disrupt our defense mechanisms and, and to learn to welcome these encounters with the real of life. I mean, at a very basic level, Christianity teaches that our emotional and spiritual even physical and psychological health and well-being as as individuals and as communities. It depends upon our willingness to um, disturb and surrender and constantly update our working models of reality. And we do this through encounters with the real. And, Christianity teaches and, to learn to do this in the presence of the Holy Spirit. With the Spirit in our lives, giving us a sense of God's love for us, God's patience with us as we do this, that God has us, that we're safe, and that God is actually leading us somewhere with all of this. It's not in vain. And the other thing that it, Christianity teaches is that there's really only one way to do this, and that is to practice. And this is why Lent exists. Lent is this seven-week Season in which we practice the intentional disturbance of our settled realities and routines. We just, we kind of disrupt our defense mechanisms and welcome eruptions of the real. That's what we do in Lent. And the story we tell each year at the beginning to, to guide us in this is the story of Christ being tested or tempted in the wilderness that we read earlier. It begins like this. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested By the devil. After fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So it begins kind of in a in a curious way, something we should notice, which is that it says, Jesus is led by the Spirit. He's not lost or being punished. The Spirit's leading Christ here. Luke actually says, Jesus, filled with the Spirit, was led by the Spirit. It's like a double dose of it. In Matthew, they're, they're trusting that you just remember the story right before this is the baptism where the Spirit of God comes and rests on him like a dove. So he's filled with the Spirit and led with the Spirit into the wilderness. So, so he's not doing something wrong. God is leading Christ here. Where? Into the, the wilderness, Wilderness is a huge word. Like In scripture, there's this pattern that happens so often. It has become a general principle in, in the Hebrew tradition, the Jewish tradition, and Christian tradition. It's this idea that God does a specific kind of work when we disengage from our normal routines of life. You know, like in our homes and in regular spaces, all of our defenses are at our disposal they're fully stocked, right? We're safe and comfortable and protected from harm, from, from the elements. And we're close to, like, family and friends. And so anytime there's a disturbance or a little, like, pain or discomfort, we have a quick way out. Always. Ready ready at hand. The medicine cabinet, you know, the liquor cabinet, the TV, the phone, the, the computer, food, some, just somebody to, to talk to. And in the Christian narrative, there are these two biblical words that track together that signify the lack of those defenses, those quick fixes. And it's the word wilderness and the word desert. And they're used almost interchangeably. And they sort of symbolize this place where God has special access to people for a specific kind of work, usually making adjustments to our working model of reality. And God does this because God has led people into the wilderness, so the wilderness or desert is where this kind of work happens. It's a huge theme in the scriptures. In fact, the word wilderness is 164 times in scripture. The word desert shows up 192 times. That's a 356 times these concepts are used. That in in terms of scripture, that's a lot for a concept to show up. Plus, the, like the list of people who are led into. The wilderness, it's like the who's who of the Bible. It's Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, the entire Israelite people, David, Elijah, John the Baptist, Jesus, just to name a few of them. Plus then there's all those weird stories of people who are stranded in some kind of wilderness like Daniel in the lion's den or or Jonah in the whale or Elijah in the mouth of the cave or Mary hidden up in the hill country with Elizabeth or Paul shipwrecked, or, or John exiled on an island. God has this habit of just plucking people out of their normal routines and their working model of reality and the, the defended spaces and then plopping them down in some kind of wilderness in order to do some, some work on their working model of reality because their, their current model is holding them back in some way or causing them problems. And these words, desert and wilderness, they're like textual clues. They just signal that that's what's happening right here. God's doing a specific kind of a work. Because as humans, our normal rhythms and routines, man, they're just like highly optimized to defend our working model of reality against anything else, just to keep us tracking with business as usual. And we're really um, unlikely... To change, to rework things, rethink things with all those defenses at the ready. And so we go to the wilderness because there we're vulnerable to everything. We don't have our defenses. And so when the eruptions of the real happen, we're, we're forced to kind of deal with them and work through them and usually have to adjust the way we see reality. And so I always think it's interesting, it's fascinating to me that. that That we always begin every year in Lent with this story of Jesus in the wilderness, and that the way the Bible tells the story, before he gets to any of the other stuff he does, he goes to the wilderness. And there are these two big stories: there's the the baptism of John the Baptist, which is out in the wilderness, and then this this tempting, this testing time. I mean, you could you could really say the Jesus movement begins in the wilderness. Like full stop it does, and so those who want to follow Jesus have to learn how to do wilderness we're told that Jesus is brought into the wilderness to be tempted or, or tested. The King James version um, of the scripture translated as as tempted. The Greek word is periasmos, which means testing I mean it 's like It occurs like seven times in Matthew every time they translate it testing, except for sometimes here, and that's because of the influence of the King James. So periasmos is testing. This is a testing. Okay, so why does Jesus need to be tested? Well, the first testing is about food, interestingly. And, like, hopefully this connection will be clear. This mention just of food um, connects this story to an earlier temptation in the story of God around food, which is Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve. And the serpent tempting them around food, right? It's so a direct connection between the two. Also, to something that happened in between those, which is the children of Israel in the wilderness. If you remember, the first thing you start complaining to Moses about is the food. Like, where's our food? And it says they missed, they missed the flesh pots, the stew pots that smelled so good cooking back in Egypt, this is also why often Lent, Lenten fasts are food, right? So it's all connected here. The second, third testings are interesting. They're they're about how Jesus will bring about the kingdom. Like, will he do something spectacular, jump off the temple, right, and be saved, or will he take the easy way out and become king, but do so by kind of bowing down to the princes of this this world? In in, in other words. To get, to accomplish what he wants, but not by the means of the kingdom, not trusting God for God's way, and so essentially, what each of these tests does is they offer Jesus a quick way out of the wilderness, and it's kind of stunning to think about that. Like the reason that he's tested is because he has to know what's going to happen. I mean, he's going to go on to like some suffering, the cross, the garden. The betrayal, a chance to raise an army and fight like he 's going to face some temptations here he 's in he 's in the wilderness to find out what what 's his map of reality how 's that going to help him decide what to do and and so implicit in this is the idea that jesus's working model of reality wasn't finished yet even jesus needed to work on it which almost sounds heretical because we're taught to think of christ as perfect but uh, and, and we think of perfect as like unchanging like without like we like a perfect diamond that's what we think of perfection the hebrew concept was not like that it, it just meant existing as it should be like it's supposed to be in the end and so what I think is revealed in this story, and really in Christ's whole ministry, especially here, is, is that God's idea of human perfection includes the necessity of struggle and even failure. It's normative for our growth. I mean, it's like when you teach your t- kids to, um, when you teach them to, like, tie their shoe or ride a bike, you don't punish them or despise them when they struggle and fail, Right? That's just part of the process of learning and growing. This is how God is with us. We're these precious children who are trying to learn how to be human. And, and when we struggle and fail, this is not a problem for God. God moves in close to that. In fact, smooth sailing for too long is, is usually a problem. That usually means we've stopped changing. Our defenses are really great and our working model of reality is, is frozen. And that's when we need the wilderness. That's when we need a place we can push ourselves beyond the limits of our working model of reality. And one of the deep lessons of the wilderness is that our struggle to become human, um, in our struggle to become human as human was meant to be, our brokenness is factored in. It, it's used by God. And it makes sense. I mean, struggle and pain are like one of the main ways we ever will let ourselves change and grow and this is why God leads us to the wilderness from time to time to sort of weaken our defenses against encounters with the real of life in order to test our working model of reality to draw closer toward the reality God imagines for us and, and I think this is one of the gifts of Redemption Church and what we offer to to the world that this idea that God doesn't punish or despise us when our brokenness comes out. And we can share it because we're ragamuffins, right? Because we're, we're practicing this together. You find it throughout Christ's ministry, just the way he always is standing in solidarity with these broken strugglers. And, and this isn't just a cute story about how cool he was. This is revealing what God is like and what it means to be human. That a perfect human isn't an unfailing one, but one who endures failure and struggle, learning from it and becoming more and more human over time. The fact that Jesus was required to go into into the wilderness for this testing, for me, it's just like makes me feel like God is with me when I'm struggling. It's interesting, if you don't know Hebrew, you kind of, you miss one of the ways that God is patient um, with our struggles. um, When we're told, like, he's led in the wilderness, it says for 40 days and 40 nights. You know, Hebrew numbers, they, 40, they they have other meanings. Like, 40 can mean 10 times four, or it can mean another concept, and the concept is just enough, enough time. um, However long it takes. Um, God has as much time as we need to change and grow. And so the, the patience of God is just embedded right here in the story. That number 40 has deep significance for, for God, like taking however much time we need. It would also remind us of things in the Hebrew narrative if we were first readers. So things like, things like um, Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness learning to trust in God. Elijah spent 40 days in the wilderness trying to learn to hear the voice of God. Jesus here spends 40 days in the wilderness to be tested by the tempter. And so with the 40, God's patience just sort of sits over all of that stuff. 40 also signals, 40 and wilderness signals that this is like an Exodus thing happening. So God is trying to lead us out of a limited working model of reality toward something bigger here. So that... Children of Israel, they're, they're in Egypt for 400 years. Like their minds, their model of reality had been formed as slaves. They, they, don't, they don't know how to trust in God. They don't even know, if you remember the story, they don't even know God's name. They don't have language for God, much less imagination. And so God leads them into this wilderness time, this place of utter vulnerability, and, and really gives them a whole new working model of reality over that 40 years, And it's just the daily practices that help him do it. So they need water, got to find a rock, and he hits the rock with the staff. you need need food, got to go with with manna in the morning. If you need directions, you follow the the pillar of cloud and fire. For 40 years, they do these simple practices in the wilderness, and God just gives them a whole new working model of reality to help them stop living like slaves, you know, And start living like children of God. And so Jesus is led into the wilderness for 40 days to to be tested, to see if he'll take the easy way out of the wilderness or, or trust God for whatever needs to happen in that place. And what ends up happening, of course, is that Christ is revealed to be the bread of life, like the manna in the wilderness. He's revealed to be the living water like the staff and the rock in the wilderness. He's revealed to be the way, right? Just like the pillar of cloud and fire. This is the Christ that's revealed, and it's revealed in the wilderness. You know, We go through our life with our working model of reality. It's just locked down and highly defended against anything that might disturb it. And these defenses at some point, always start to work against us. They're like, um, they're like ma- massive fortresses around our working model of reality. And at some point, it becomes hard to tell if they're keeping scary things locked out or scary things locked in, like locked inside us, if they're keeping us safe or keeping us in bondage, like the children of Israel in Egypt. I mean, there are just times, this is part of the human experience. You're not doing something wrong. It's just part of what it means to be human. There are times when we're trapped within a working model of reality that's too small. And it's limiting us in some way from imaging God. And, and it's weird because we're going through our days and it's like nothing's really wrong except we're not free. And there's this nagging sense I'm not free. And so God, in those seasons, invites us into the wilderness. And we do this as a practice every year during Lent. Lent is 40 days long, um, excepting Sundays. You don't count Sundays. To fit this biblical pattern. We do these practices like fasting from something, just to kind of weaken our defenses. It's almost arbitrary. And, And we embrace the intentional disturbance of our subtle realities. I always like to try, try to hijack something that's like um, where I do my defensiveness. Like I'm, this year I'm not eating after 10 p.m. because that's usually when something's wrong and I it's either eat or feel your feelings, so I eat, right? It's stuff like that. Just something that'll keep us from defending ourselves against the thoughts we don't want to think and the, the feelings we don't want to feel. And the story of Christ in the wilderness teaches us that... that um, if, if you do this and you start to feel kind of lost and, and a little bit broken or angry or frustrated in the wilderness of life or in this case of Lent the story tells us you're not doing anything wrong even Christ did this your brokenness is factored in and God makes it serve a beautiful purpose it tells us God's spirit is always with you guiding you, protecting you, you're not alone. It tells us God is patient, has all the time it takes, 40 of whatever, like to wrestle and change and grow. And it tells us that there, there's a whole new reality out there waiting to be discovered that Jesus called the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God in the world. And it usually starts with a trip into the wilderness, like some simple denial for Jesus, it was food and companionship. For us, it can be, you know, chocolate, caffeine. One of my friends, Ryan Green, he one time gave up his own opinion. That's a good one. And what happens is God, God uses that self-denial, that hijacking of our defense mechanisms, as a tool to kind of gain access to our working model of reality, to bring it more in line with reality itself, but also to bring it more in line with the reality God is trying to foment and bring to be in the world, the kingdom of God. The the reality that ultimately we say as Christians has been revealed in Christ. One of my favorite guys, Dallas Willard, he said it this way, and we'll end with this quote. He said, the self-denial that Jesus calls us to is always the surrender of a lesser, dying, petty, futile self for a greater, eternal one. That's what we're doing. That's discipleship in the season of Lent. It's not about the denial of like whatever, chocolate or whatever. It's about the denial of a self or a working model of reality that's, that's always too small And God is always saying, stretch, grow, you can do this. Lent is about the surrender of a lesser, dying, petty, futile self. A lesser, dying, petty, futile working model of reality that has us trapped. And if we stay there too long, usually in some kind of bondage. And to exchange that for a much greater, maybe even eternal self, maybe even eternal reality. And so this is our task during Lent, is to go into the wilderness and not take the quick, easy way out. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for the season of Lent and for this story of Christ who just entered fully into everything that we have to enter into in life. We thank you, God, that you're not far off in a way, but that you've you've come for us. And pray that the Spirit of Christ would inhabit all of our lives and bind us together during this season of Lent. And we pray that we would be brave to like find a way to, to give you access to our hearts and to our imagination and to our language, to our, our working model of reality, and pray that we would stay with the practice of wilderness and give you access to all of it. Amen. Will you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion at this time. The way that we do it, if you haven't been here before, is um, the ushers will come forward and release us row by row. You come forward and you'll be offered a plate of bread and a cup. You just take a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and receive it. And they'll say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say, I will remember, or however you're comfortable responding. The reason that we do this is because on Christ's last night with his disciples, he had them share in this, this one loaf of bread and this one cup. They drank from the same cup. And, and he passed it to all of them. And, and then he said, this, this bread is like my body. This cup is like my life, my blood." And he said, whenever you gather, like feast on this. Take this in, 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 into your body. Be made out of the stuff I'm made out of, essentially. And then go out into the world and be my hands and feet He said, whenever you gather, do this. And so this is why we receive communion at the end of every service. And this is also why we don't set limits on it. We just invite anyone um, who calls on the name of Jesus to join us at the table. So I invite you now to pray with me a blessing on the elements. Heavenly Father, we do pray your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?